You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have a special guest with us, Jim Carroll of Toroso Advisors. Jim and I met through our work in the investment space, and it was a little bit like pulling teeth to get Jim to come on because he keeps a pretty low profile, doesn't have a desire to be famous, but I absolutely love the work they're doing at Toroso Advisors. So I asked Jim repeatedly, man, I got to have you on the show. I want you to tell your story. He's been gracious enough to come do it. He's been involved in financial services for almost 40 years now, which doesn't make sense because I can see him and there's no way he is that old, but he has. And I like how Jim says this, but he said, you know, I heard one time that Everyone has a pathology of some sort, and his is that he enjoys being in the markets. And he's actually one of those crazy people who thinks the markets are a lot of fun. And what I've seen from Jim is he actually enjoys helping people who don't have a lot of expertise in navigating these markets. He wants them to help achieve their financial objectives. And so he has a lot of passion for that. And that's part of what I really, really respect about Jim. And you're going to hear that today as we talk about some of these investment concepts or the way that they take care of people. Jim has a great way of just simplifying it so that even if it's not your area of expertise, you can walk away with some really tangible knowledge that's useful. So Jim, thank you so much for being with us here today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Tommy. Well, Jim, our listeners love hearing people's stories. And so, you know, I know you didn't start out originally thinking you were going to be involved with this powerhouse firm. In fact, you were raised with an army dad. And that actually, I think, played a lot into the way that you operate today. But I want you to tell that story. So take us from there, Jim. Sure, sure. So I actually was born in New York City, uh, where I lived for a long time as an adult. But my dad was in the Army, and we moved every three or four years. So I'm one of five kids, and I was born in New York. My brother was born in El Paso, Texas. And I have three sisters who were all born in San Diego, but on different trips through, because my parents both grew up in San Diego, but my dad's Army career took him all over the place. And so we literally just packed it up and moved every four years on average. And, you know, looking back on it, I didn't know that that was unusual until I met people who, you know, had been born and lived in the same town basically their entire lives. Uh, I didn't know any different. And so what I credit it with is adaptability. I had to adapt. I had to go to a new school, make a bunch of new friends and deal with it because, that's how we rolled. And then circumstances, my dad retired from the army and moved back to San Diego just as I was going into high school. So I joke that he stopped moving and I started moving because I spent four years in San Diego, went off to college, uh, actually joined the army myself because I used army ROTC to pay for college. So spent four years in the army, went to business school, decided to move to New York <laughs> at <laughs> full circle. So Jim, I want to ask about a few of these pieces. So what was it that 
you know, took you from army to business school. That's not a jump that a lot of people end up making. So how did that happen for you? Well, so let's go back to undergrad for just a minute. As the son of an army guy who then taught high school for a bunch of years, I I didn't exactly have a business role model uh, in the family. But, you know, I had this idea. I had, you know, jobs and holidays and summers and you know, what are you going to do when you get out of college? You're going to get a job. I mean, what does that mean? I guess I guess that means I'm going to go into some kind of business. So I said, well, I'll study economics in college and that'll teach me what I need to know. Then one of my very first professors in econ said, assume rational behavior. And I kind of scratched my head and said, oh, crap. I don't know who he hangs out with, but it's nobody I know. At the same time, I took a an elective, what I thought was an elective in the psychology department, an organizational behavior class. And I said, ah, this makes sense. Let's study the irrational behavior that goes on inside of companies and organizations. And that's what I'll do. So I went from being an econ major to a psych major during my time in the army. I used it as a way to pay for school, but I didn't see it as a career path. I could look at the people I was working for who had been in the army 10, 20, 30 years. And I said, is that what I want to be when I grow up? And I decided that it wasn't. The crazy story is that I have a cousin who's the same age and she's the family genius. So I literally called her up when I was thinking about going back to business school and said, Connie, I hear you're going back to business school. What's the deal? I think I have enough money to submit two applications. And she said, well, I've applied to the top 10 schools. I've been accepted at all 10, and I'm deciding between Stanford and Harvard. So I didn't know anything. I wasn't, you know, in a job where I was rubbing elbows with anybody who was going back to business school. So I applied to Stanford and Harvard. I was just going to say, please tell me you applied to both. (laughs) I applied to both. I was living in San Francisco, and I applied to Cal Berkeley part-time. And they said, if you want to come full-time, you can do that. So I I had my backup, but Stanford rejected me. Harvard accepted me. And when I arrived at Harvard on the first day of school, I figured out why. Because there were some other ex-military people in my class, in my section. And every single one of us was called on to open a case within the first two or three days of school. They knew that they could count on us to take charge, to be leaders, <laughs> all that stuff that you believe some military person might be. You know, that, that's how it happened. And listeners, this process that Jim's talking about at HBS and most business schools, part of the way they've learned to teach is through what they call the case study method, where they take you through a business case. It might be Coke versus Pepsi. It might be Bobby Knight and Coach K. There's all sorts of case studies, but they're going to be on some concept. They don't tell you in advance what you're supposed to learn out of this case. They just have you prep for this case. And then because the professors absolutely love their students, they look around the room for whoever's paying attention the least at the moment, and they will... (laughs) call on that student. They call it a cold call. They will call on that student to get the case moving. And I'm joking about calling on whoever's paying attention the least. That happens rarely. But usually they'll call on somebody that they can depend on to get the case started in a halfway intelligent manner and get dialogue on the table. And the secret is most of these cases 
they can go two different directions or more. And so what they're really trying to do is get the room to think. You've got this challenge or this issue that's happening in the company. You're the leader. You have to make decisions or you have to help the organization make decisions or you have to lead. And what are you going to do faced in this situation? And the cases they pick intentionally, the answer is not universally obvious. Usually there are multiple pathways people could go. And the whole idea is to teach you how to think as a leader. And so I like what Jim's saying that clearly HBS, who is really known for cranking out some of the best managers of our day in companies, is trying to make sure they have people that are going to step up and make those conversations happen. Because if they don't, it's a really bad class. But if you have a few great people that'll step up, it makes it just a tremendous experience. And Jim, I'm going to come back at the end. I'm going to give you a little time to think about it. But at the end, I always ask a question that everybody wants to know, which is really the question I want to know. I'm giving you the first ever preview of what that question is going to be. (laughs) I want to hear about your favorite case study. We'll come back to that at the end. I'm giving you a little bit of time to think about it in advance, but I'd love to bring a case study, a, a mini case study right on air, why you loved it, what you learned from it and why it's been meaningful for you uh, throughout your career. But I love that. So HBS looked at it and said, we want some people in these classrooms that are going to get these conversations kicked off so that we can get maximum effectiveness out of it. And looking back in hindsight, Jim, and I, I didn't go through the real MBA program the way that you did, But even in the program for leadership development, we sure had some really, really outstanding military members who were in our cohort. And I kid you not, they sure got things kicked off in the early days. So I don't think that strategy has changed much since you were there. It's obviously working. Well, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. I'll never forget, we would take lunch times the first couple of weeks of class And everybody would just go around and introduce themselves and say something. And I will never forget one of the nicest guys in our section, slightly older. So he was in his 30s. He had gone to Harvard undergrad, had studied physics, had gotten his Ph.D. in physics, had gone out to California, some physics think tank. And he said, you know, I just had done everything I thought there was to do in physics. So I figured maybe I'll go back to business school. You know, and and this was the kind of person that you're sitting there saying, holy, how am I supposed to, you know, go toe to toe with somebody who's this smart? And there were other people in that same category. But, you know, the reality is that it's not just smart that gets you there. It's a combination of things. I was listening to a podcast earlier today with a guy named Dan Goldman, who is a, uh, professor, I want to say psychology, but, you know, he's the guy who wrote emotional intelligence, EQ. And this, all the studies they've done have basically said that, you know, the best leaders are the ones who have the highest emotional intelligence, not just book smart. You got to be able to work with people and get people to lead and get people to follow. So it was it was a great experience. It was interesting, Jim. Uh, Just last week, I had someone contact me. He just got into this uh, program for leadership development program at HBS that I had gone through. And he reached out. He said, I want to talk with you in advance about how can I maximize my time in doing this? And I thought first that was brilliant. Like I never had that 
type of foresight. But I said, of course, I'll give you some time. And as I was thinking about what to tell him, it wasn't, ooh, take all this extra time to prepare for cases. It wasn't any of that. I said, there's really two things I can give you. First is spend your time most getting to know your living group or, you know, that small group, because these are people that could be lifelong friends. So spend most of your time there. And then the guy from our entire cohort that has really been done the most with his education at HBS out of anybody I know, he was the guy that organized all the parties. He just became legendary because he brought everyone together and when I said that, this gentleman immediately was, his face just lit up and he was so excited because he said, oh my gosh, I used to be a bartender. I know how to do this. And I was like, you're going to be fine. You're going to do great. Just get everybody connected and everyone will love you. And so, as you said, it's not always about being the smartest person in the room, but you know, being somebody that can actually identify the needs that are happening. And it's a great transition. You know, you spent this time at HBS did a great job in these case studies, but now you're getting ready to come out. And I know your desire was to go into finance, but here you're, you're a psychology undergrad. You've been in the army and now you've gone to business school, but not really had real world experience in the financial world. So how did you bridge that transition to get where you wanted to go? Well, the true story is that I interviewed and interviewed and interviewed, and I finally found myself in an interview with a guy who had been in the Navy. <laughs> so true story, you know, I finally found somebody who could resonate with my military experience and, and see the possibilities of having somebody, you know, as crazy as he was to work in corporate finance. And so I got a job at what was then Smith Barney in the corporate finance department. And really spent the first not quite 20 years uh, on the investment banking side of Wall Street, doing all the things that investment bankers do, doing initial public offerings, helping companies in merger and acquisition transactions, spent quite a bit of time in bankruptcy and restructuring work, because when Drexel Burnham blew up, that became a big business for all the other Wall Street firms. And then... You know, ultimately, it actually led me to an opportunity to be the chief financial officer of a little company that went public in March of 2000, which for those of you who weren't paying attention was the peak of the Internet bubble. And needless to say, I was involved with a, a little Internet startup that was taken public by Morgan Stanley. You know, Mary Meeker, queen of the Internet, uh, was involved in our public offering. And unfortunately, when everything melted down, our little company didn't quite achieve liftoff. We didn't achieve escape velocity. So it wasn't the final chapter for uh, any of us who were involved. But it did lead me to what I've been doing ever since, which is managing money for individual investors, some of them high net worth, some of them regular net worth, because at the time I was focused on surviving this technology crash. And so had an investment strategy that was everything but technology during that time period and had friends and family who said, save us, please. And so that's when I made the pivot to the investment management business that I've been doing ever since. 
So it was almost an organic shift caused by demand from your family and friends saying, we need your help. (laughs) It really was. You know, it's hard for most people to think back that far. But, you know, if you weren't caught up in the Internet frenzy of the late 90s and early 2000s, you just weren't paying attention. I mean, you know, it was unbelievably difficult to have money invested in the market and not be chasing what was hot at the time. Because if you weren't chasing what was hot at the time, even if you had what historically looked like decent positive returns, they paled in comparison to what your neighbor or your brother-in-law or you know whoever else you knew was pulling out of the market because they were invested in you know the Munder Internet Fund or you know the stock of the moment you know Pets.com, Yahoo, all of the stuff that was going crazy at the time. I mean, Amazon, Apple, all of it. Jim, I actually started in financial services in October of 2000. So we were just right at the height of the bubble. You know, I was just a lowly intern. I was pushing paperwork. And uh, this is back (laughs) in the days we still had a filing cabinet. And, you know, I was filling out paperwork day in and day out and scanning and all those good things. But everybody, everybody that came in the door, you know, was just... Oh, my portfolio is going like crazy. And uh, then very quickly thereafter, it all changed. And so that's kind of how I got to start out my entire career was just watching the crash of that internet bubble. It was epic. You know, again, it goes back to adaptation. It goes back to being somebody who never felt like I was stuck in any one place. I just didn't even hesitate to pivot when that time came. It was just like, okay, we're going to move from, you know, New York to El Paso to San Diego to two places in Virginia and off to Hawaii. Okay, fine. You know, I'm going to start as an investment banker and become a CFO and now pivot to being an investment advisor. Why not? And so as you got your start, Jim, one of the things, and we do have quite a few advisors that listen in or, or people that run advisory firms as well. How did you get your start in terms of going beyond your base of kind of family and friends that had just reached out to you out of necessity for help? How did you actually build a scalable business? (laughs) Well, I still consider what I do to be kind of a niche and I never intended to be, you know, all things to all people or, you know, build a billion dollar practice you know, I looked at the stats, you know, what are the base rates? You know, you understand your industry. And when I looked at some of the stats, it just staggered me, right? That if you're an advisor at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or, you know, Smith Barney was still big at the time, you know, you had hundreds and hundreds of clients and the average client relationship might be 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, something like that. And the churn was crazy. So, you know, what I discovered was that I was entering an industry where I didn't want to be kind of the base rate. I didn't want to be one of those advisors. And oh, by the way, I I had worked with a lot of those people during my investment banking time because they were always trying to introduce us to some deal. They were trying to get us to do a corporate finance deal for somebody they were involved with so that they could pick up, you know, a, a slice of the transaction fee. So I, I, from the beginning, 
I made a conscious decision that what I wanted to try to do was to build a business on a relatively small number of more meaningful relationships. And that really still is, is the approach that I take. And in some cases, that has resulted in me basically overseeing 100% of somebody's investable net worth and advising them on you know, a whole host of financial topics. And in some cases, by virtue of the other choice that I made, which was to be heavily involved in the actual portfolio management and the investment strategy, I have pieces of investment portfolios that have turned out to be a fit with clients who have multiple advisors. Because I also recognize that some clients are never going to have just one advisor. And so I've got things that I can do that fit in with what somebody else is looking for and where I can work collaboratively with whoever else they've got on the team. I like that. And Jim, a question I get asked quite often is, should I diversify my advisor? Hmm. And, uh, you know, listeners, I'm going to go off script slightly, but I really believe, and I have no financial relationship with Jim, so I can say this with just full confidence. I really believe until you get to a pretty astronomical net worth or that you have some crazy, unique, specific situation that you are actually best served to not diversify advisors, to have one primary advisor that manages all of your money. Why? Because we know that only half of the returns come from the actual investment choices that are made, that the other half comes from properly coordinating all of those investment choices, making sure that we think about taxes, that we think about which account to own certain investments in. And if you don't have one advisor who's responsible for all of that, it's almost like you're taking about half your return and just throwing it into the wind because it's really hard to take care of that if you're not overseeing the entire portfolio. So um, you're hearing that. It's maybe a little surprising for many of you, but I, I would submit if you're below probably $20 million dollars, it would be nuts to me to think about having multiple advisors in the mix because I know how much you're going to lose or leave on the table through a lack of coordination, unless somehow you've got those extra advisors all talking to one another, then that can work. That traditionally isn't the mindset of an advisor until they're working with those larger relationships where it just kind of becomes part of the standard way that they operate is knowing we're going to coordinate with some other players. So I just want you to hear that from me. Again, I have no incentive for somebody to bring more of their relationship to Jim, but it's just nuts to me if somebody's utilizing multiple advisors when they have somebody trustworthy like a Jim Carroll supporting them, they ought to just consolidate. And a lot of times they just don't know better. And they think diversified advisor is a diversified portfolio. And you can still have a diversified portfolio without diversifying your advisors. So sorry to interrupt, Jim. I just wanted to point that out that I, I see that a lot in the market that people think they need to spread out their advisors. It's like, no, if you have a good one that you trust and they're doing good work for you, then go all in is my best advice. Yeah, I would add one thing to that because I think that in certain circumstances, and I've seen this before, one of the reasons that a client may choose to work with multiple advisors is because our business 
really has begun to deliver canned solutions for most clients. And so I think, you know, if you were a high net worth individual and you had meetings with five or six or eight advisors, but the odds are you're probably going to start hearing the same solution served up from everybody. And I think, you know, as advisors, uh, we haven't necessarily done a good job of truly offering clients a full array of investment solutions that can be tailored to their particular not only needs and objectives, but their own you know, personalities. I often refer to something that I call aspirational utility. Why do people want to have crypto in their portfolio? Why do people want to have venture capital in their portfolio? Why do people want to have private equity in their portfolio? Well, because all of their rich friends have that stuff in their portfolios. You know, so they want to aspire to the same thing. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you want a fast car, you want a big house. And so if they have an advisor who they feel is not offering them all the things that they aspire to, then they may go look in someplace else. It's incumbent on advisors to either have a platform where they can offer access to what clients want or be smart enough and sufficiently conversant to convince the clients that they may not really need some of those things that they think they aspire to. So, you know, there's quite a bit of education along with the ability to deliver a portfolio of things that are compelling to the client. And Jim, what a great segue into telling us more about the work that you do at Toroso Advisors and Toroso Investments. Yeah, Toroso Investments is really sort of our parent holding company. There are three legs to the stool. One is the advisory business, uh, where I primarily sit, where we work with an array of different entities, high net worth individuals, family offices, trusts. We have a number of advisors who also uh, have expertise in the retirement plan business, so work with corporate and other retirement plans, pension funds. The Toroso Investments silo is what I call a CIO business. Uh, we are dyed-in-the-wool ETF experts, and we use ETFs to construct model portfolios that are not only used internally, but are sourced externally. We have a very large outsourced CIO business where we're essentially providing the portfolio management skills to people who are better at gathering assets than they are managing them. And then the third leg of the stool is the is the youngest and fastest growing where we work with people who have an idea or a need for an exchange traded product. And we have the infrastructure and team in place to conceptualize, formalize, and launch and market ETFs for third parties. An example, a couple of examples, SoFi, uh, Social Finance, the large retail platform, wanted to launch some SoFi ETFs, didn't want to invent how you do that, uh, came to us, and we have worked with them on a number of launches. Advisors on the West Coast who had come out of Bridgewater a number of years ago, and had a very specific strategy around the concept of risk parity that they had built into a multi-hundred million dollar separately managed accounts business. Why not roll that into an exchange traded fund? So they came to us and we helped them, again, put all the pieces together and launch that. 
So that's a business that we've built quite substantially over the last few years. We've got all of the legal and technical expertise. We've got a team of traders who can handle the day-to-day requirements of managing those assets. And that's been a very powerful piece of our story over the last several years. Jim, before you went to Toroso, you were actually running your own firm. You're kind of a one-man band and then decided you really needed some extra support. And that's ultimately what brought you to Toroso Advisors. But what was it that set them apart? What were their points of difference compared to all the other independent platforms that you considered? It was an interesting journey that I went, put myself through when I really got to a place of understanding that as a one-man registered investment advisor, I was limiting myself because there were opportunities to do business with people who simply weren't comfortable with a one-man show. Toroso really gave me the best of both worlds. I run my business very much the same way that I have run it since I started in 2005, but with the support, the administrative support, the compliance support, technology support that I need, and the other pieces of Toroso, the investment management piece, the ETF platform, and all of that with people who, from my first meeting, you know, we we could see that we were like-minded. We shared the same view of how we wanted to operate in this industry, how we wanted to position the advisory business uh, and what the opportunities might be. So I was fortunate to have been introduced to the Toroso gang by people who had worked with them before, who I knew, and it clicked from the beginning. I love that. And I love how, as you said, it's really the best of both worlds. It's allowed you to scale and have some backup support but also they're not getting in your space and forcing you to do things for clients that you don't want to do. And, and that's one of the things I appreciate about Jim so much, everyone, is I just know his passion is to do what's best for his clients. And that's the hardest point as an advisor when you feel you're in a position where your firm is not supporting you in doing that. And I've, I've been very vocal about that. I actually lost the client back when I was in the wealth management space day in and day out. Lost the client because our compliance department would not allow me to apologize for a mistake I made. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So I really appreciate that. And Jim, what else is it that, you know, if there's any advisors out there listening in and maybe they've thought about leaving a wirehouse to go more independent or they've been out on their own in the RIA space and they've been thinking about, I know I need to go join an advisory firm with some scale or, or some support, who would be the best people to consider looking at Tarosa as a potential option for them? I would say independent advisors who, and this may sound harsh, but independent advisors who really are independent, who don't need direction from headquarters, who don't need an approved list of what clients should be buying or you know, who don't need the model portfolio sent down from on high, but who have a a clear sense of what their practice is and who they want to serve through their practice, but perhaps are getting tired of the stuff 
whether it's compliance, technology, all of the background noise that has just gotten louder and louder over the years, particularly the compliance piece of it. I mean, I'm sure you do, too, have a lot of friends at very large financial institutions and the compliance burden on them doing business day to day has just become astronomical, has become overwhelming. And so uh, for me, the great freedom that I have as part of Toroso, and I'm not saying it's exclusive to Toroso, but we have put in place an infrastructure that allows me to focus on what clients want me to be focused on, as opposed to administrative compliance garbage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jim and I are both huge fans of a culture of compliance, but it's of reasonable compliance that's actually protecting investors. It's not for all that unnecessary paperwork that's not even required by the SEC or FINRA or whoever your regulator may be that so many firms these days are pushing down to their advisory teams just to do an extra crossing of the T or dotting of the I, even when it's not adding protection for clients or value for the advisor or meeting any requirements from our regulators, it's just because they're creating extra bureaucracy. Maybe so somebody feels like they have a meaningful job. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's a great way to sum it up. And I, I think it's very different. Listeners, we've talked to some other firms where they're really good if you don't have your own stuff that you want to go do that they kind of provide that whole back office support and the portfolio support and the trading support and all of that. What you're hearing from Jim is Toroso may be a great fit if you actually know, here's how I'm going to manage money. Here's how I want to deliver client experience. And you just need a strong back office to reasonably handle compliance and legal and the admin type things so that you can continue to deliver the robust client experience that you want to deliver. So that's a very different model than others that we've talked with, Jim. And a great segue into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everyone wants to know. And what I really say is it's the question I want to know. And you're the first guest ever who actually got a preview of that question. Jim, I want to hear at your time at Harvard Business School, what was your favorite case study to go through? And maybe how it's also impacted you in follow-up years down the road after that. Well, there are two parts that have stayed with me. And one of them goes back to what we were talking about earlier, ex-military people having to open cases. Because the first year we had a class that they called control, which was really an accounting class. And our accounting class was taught by a woman who at the time was the only female full professor at the Harvard Business School. And she was a powerhouse, Regina Herslinger. And so she walks into class the second day. It's the afternoon session. And I took one accounting class in college and said, no mas. So I'm sitting at lunch with somebody comparing notes, and he'd worked at one of the big accounting firms. And I realized I had no idea what was going on. So to your earlier point, I was trying to hide. I was up in the last row hunched down, and she spins around and points at me and says, Mr. Carroll, please open the case. And in a rare moment of 
lucidity, I said, Professor Herslinger, would you like the answer I had last night or the one I got at lunch? And everybody cracked up and she said, I don't care. Just get us started. And that was uh, a, a moment I'll never forget. And the, the other class related theme that stuck with me, and it was part of it was because of my psychology background, was that it seemed like everybody at Harvard Business School was dissing on the, the organizational development curriculum. And we had a professor in OB who everybody loved to pick on. And I, I'll never forget that at our fifth year reunion, when people came back to campus and we're all talking and comparing notes and everybody says, I just wish I'd paid more attention in OB because, you know, the real world is all about OB. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty hysterical. Absolutely. All about people, right? And a lot of times we want to think it's all these other things. But at the end of the day, these organizations come back to being made up of people. And as you said earlier, all of us are irrational from time to time. <laughs> and so if we want to build enduring great companies, we've got to be able to understand that takes working with great people and knowing that they're not always going to be rational and we're not always going to be rational. So I appreciate that very much. And Jim, that takes us to our last question. And that is truly, I'm sure, from our listener base. Uh, you know, we have a lot of advisors that listen in. If we have an advisor out there that, you know, just feels like they do need a different backbone of support than what they're currently receiving, maybe they're not able to deliver the client experience that they once were or that they want to be able Maybe they just feel like they need some coverage because they've moved up market with their clientele and more and more prospects are saying, what happens if something happens to you? What is the best way for them to reach out and get in touch with you or Toroso if that's the type of position that they're in? There are two ways to find me. One is through the Toroso Investments website where you can find out everything you want to know about all three pieces of Toroso. You can Get me directly, Carroll at TorosoAdvisors.com. I also have a very active presence on Twitter, where I am known as the Vixologist. Vix as in the fear index and a student of volatility. That's me, at Vixologist. I love it. So listeners, wherever you get your podcast, we will be sure to post TorosoInvestments.com. And Toroso is just all O's. No A's, but TorosoInvestments.com. We'll post that in our show notes. And most platforms don't allow us to post an email in those show notes, but you heard it. It's jcarroll, J-C-A-R-R-O-L-L at TorosoAdvisors.com. And if you reach out to Jim, he'll definitely get in touch. But I can tell you they're an outstanding firm, uh, especially for that person that you already have your investment strategy mapped out and you're not wanting to join some kind of roll up or something to have that type of support provided to you. Tarosa just does an outstanding job. So, Jim, thank you so much for being with us here today. Listeners, thank you for being with us. We can't do this show without you. And we appreciate you very much and look forward to seeing you right back here on Beyond the Ordinary next week. 
for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.